I want to talk about sea shanties. Okay, but to be fair, Kendra, when don't you want to talk about sea shanties? When I'm obsessed with something else, like madrigals. So then the rain comes down, spreading tear all over town. Soon then the guillotine drops, save our bloody souls. This is Badass Women of History with Jillian and Kendra. For so long, women were silent. If I fall over, pick me up, because I've got some things to say. Hear me now. Hi, I'm Kendra. And I'm Jillian. And on this week's episode of Badass Women of History, we're talking about Charlotte Corday. Can you tell me when you first heard about Charlotte Corday? I can. Um, So I was in sixth grade and in the California curriculum, you have to do these reports on a country. And we had this French foreign exchange student. So I decided I was going to do France as the country that I was doing the big long report on. And being, you know, the dark and creepy child that I was even back then, um, I really wanted to write about not just the French Revolution, but also the reign of terror. And Charlotte sort of came up in all of my research. And I was very interested in this young woman who was at once a radical who wanted like reforms in the parliament and everything like that, but was also a royalist because I didn't understand in my little, and hell, in my 44-year-old brain, I don't really understand how that works, but here we are, who basically took matters into her own hands and stabbed some dude in a bath. And then I saw the Jean-Jacques Louis David painting and was like, oh, well, that's just creepy and fabulous. And then when I wanted to be a journalist and seeing people's response to, you know, fake journalism and all of that stuff, or tabloid journalism, as we called it then, now we call it Fox News. Um, Anyway, I just sort of became even more interested in her and her story and how amazing she is. Um, What about you, Kendra? When did you first hear about her? So when I was small, I didn't have a lot of friends. And it's probably really understandable if anyone could hear what we were doing earlier in this recording. (laughs) And I would read the encyclopedia. And then I would research things that looked interesting. So I was a very small human when I first learned about Charlotte Corday. And some of the first stories that were told about her was that, you know, she wasn't, she wasn't a patriot. No. And she was really vilified. And honestly, for me, like understanding, even as a small human, that Marat was sort of inciting people to kill a lot more people and like working with, oh, what dude's name? Robespierre. Robespierre. Working with him to like, you know, just really just do sort of a genocide or would it be a staticide? Like, I don't know. What would you call that? I don't think just... it would be a genocide. I really like staticide. I don't know if that's actually a word, but hashtag trademarked. It's our word now. For real though. Kids. So I was really interested in how, like, they really threw France into a very dark period. Yeah, the terror was not a lot of fun. And yet she was the one who was vilified. <laughs> she killed a man who incited other people to kill a lot of other people. And she's the bad one. So I was always interested in her. Well, she shouldn't have been born a woman. I mean, that was her big like flaw. And that really is what it boils down to. So I'm going to get into Charlotte's history real quick. Okay. Charlotte was born the 27th of July, 1768, to minor aristocracy. Her family was really on hard times. She was sent to the Abbey Adam in Cain, where she had access to the library, and she first encountered the writings of Plutarch, Rousseau, Voltaire. She became friends with Madame Le Coustier, Postelier, oh, de, forget it. <laughs> this lady had a lot of names and I'm so tired today. Um, but she ended up being the sole heir of her cousin's estate. Charlotte or the lady with the big long name? The lady with the big long name. Okay. 
Le Custelier de Breville de Gouville. Lots of Vils. So many Vils. So many L's. I love you, France. I love you. But like that weird tongue flippy thing, I'm not up to it this week. And I apologize in advance. So after the revolution, she was radicalized further. Not just she had been sort of radicalized early on by her relationship with her cousin and from the readings that she was doing. And as the revolution was radicalized further, she actually began to sympathize with the Girondins. Um, She admired their speeches. She met a lot of them while she was with her cousin. And she liked how they had a more moderate approach to the revolution. Um, Instead of like mass murder and all of this stuff, she thought that there was a more even-keeled way to go about being in a revolution. At some point, she realized that Marat's writings were driving a lot of the sans-culottes rhetoric and decided that maybe, this is where it's going to differ from Judith chopping off the head of Halifernes, Charlotte went in with the idea that if she cut the head off the snake, the whole movement would die, and then they could have a more measured approach to building a new society. How'd that work out for her? Really poorly. And this really happened after the September massacres of 1792 is where she was like, no, this has got to end. This is not okay. So she decided that what she was going to do is she was going to somehow get an audience with Marat and kill him. And she went with the express purpose of killing him. Like she, like no question whatsoever. She even sent a letter to her father, I think, before she did it saying, hey, I'm really sorry, but this has to happen. If we want to be able to save people, I need to do this. So she went to his house, his girlfriend, wife, girlfriend, I think girlfriend, I don't think they were married. I don't think it matters, honestly, but she answered the door Charlotte said, hey, I've got some information about the Girondins. His girlfriend was like, "Mm -mm, no, you can't come in. She came by later in the day and somebody else answered the door and said she had information about the Girondins. And that person let her in to see Marat. She literally sat. So a little bit of background on Marat. Marat had a, he was slowly moving out of the public sphere because he had a skin condition. It required him to be in a bath a lot. Part of me wonders if his skin condition wasn't exacerbated by being constantly submerged, but like, who am I? I'm not a doctor, but also Marat spent a lot of time in the bathtub. So he had meetings in the bathtub. He met a lot of people in the tub. And so she sat with him while he was in the bath and they talked for like an hour, maybe two, about all of these different groups and what they were doing and all types of stuff. And eventually she just up and stabbed him. His last words was, help me my friends. His girlfriend and some other people in the house came in, grabbed her, arrested her. She was taken and then she was tried. Um, In the trial, she was pretty much like, look, I killed one man to save 10,000. And I'm like, okay, that's like a really, that's a strong, strong statement. And I kind of like it. She also wrote letters to people and her thoughts on this were, I have avenged many innocent victims and prevented other disasters. The day will come when people undeceived will rejoice at being delivered from a tyrant. Rejoice at my fate. The cause of it is beautiful. She was literally like, no, I'm going to like do the thing. And eventually people are going to come to their senses and realize like what I have done for them. And how did that work out for her? <sighs> well, she had a meeting with Madame Guillotine and lost the meeting lost her head, lost her life. Does anyone win that meeting? Does anybody go into a meeting with Madame de Guillotine and come out victorious? No one is spared. Madame la Guillotine claims them all. Dukes and duchesses, lords and ladies, men and women of both sexes. A dozen times an hour, the drums roll, the blade falls, and the heads roll. I mean, it's not like it's a meeting you want to go into, right? Like, yeah. there's always hopes. I don't know. Right now, I'm... <laughs> Anywho. <laughs> so, yeah, she loses her life. Not long after that, it does the opposite of what she wants it to do. It, in fact, enrages 
the Sansculottes against the Girondins. And then um, that's when the reign of terror start, sort of really, really just goes from like low key, we're going to murder people to high key. Let's kill fucking everyone. So uh, it backfired like, whoa. And on top of that, she was super vilified. And even like in the whatever, whenever I was reading books, she was still, it was like, oh, it's this horrible woman who murdered a man, not this person who thought she was doing the right thing by killing a man who was inciting others to kill hundreds of people. It is also important at this point in time to say that like the reign of terror in France got so out of control that it actually ended up killing Robespierre, who was one of the mover and shakers of the reign of terror. Like, that's how banana pants this sort of thing became, is even, like, basically the father, one of the ones who really sort of vilified um, Corday, ended up losing his head because of the sans-culottes just going batshit crazy because they're sort of prophet or whatever the fuck you want to call him got stabbed by a woman it was a bad life choice that charlotte made in that moment no matter how right her reasons were and it's one of those things where you look at judith and judith is like i'm gonna cut the head off the snake the snake will die we'll be fine here charlotte's like i have to act in accordance with my beliefs and my beliefs are this man is poisoning the world which he was he totally was like when we talk about when we talk about news and its place in creating an atmosphere where things like the revolution can happen, or let's say a whole bunch of people decide to dabble in some insurrection and go into the Capitol building, there is a place where news people and journalists and people who write they have a responsibility that what they are talking about is true, number one, and hopefully minimizes harm, right? The idea that news people and journalists are supposed to be impartial. I mean, they always talk about like the law being impartial and juries being impartial and stuff like that. But I think that one of the things that people really need to understand, especially about Marat and some of other moments in history, when news people who are supposedly reporting on what's going on um, one of the things that happens is is these people who get radicalized on both sides of the political aisle is they start to lose their impartiality and start putting um, their own spin on things. And this is also something that we'll sort of look at when we talk about Simone de Beauvoir, putting their own spin on things and sometimes for good and sometimes in the right way. But in other cases, especially in the case of Marat, it leads to the death of thousands of people and sort of fans the flames of of already discontented humans to make worse life choices and then ends up blowing up in people's faces. It also does a thing where her actions sort of aided in the restructuring of the private versus public role of the woman in society at the time. And she was sort of seen at the time as a hero to people who felt Marat was terrible. But the thing that happened that wasn't great is that anyone who was not in that camp, not a Girondin, or even not a sans-culotte, like if they were like, if they were sans-culotte, or if they were just a regular human going about trying to make it through the terror as unscathed as possible, right? Because there are those who are like, look, I don't know what the right thing is, and I'm scared, and I don't have the information I need to make a good decision. Those people too, you know, then there became this thing where women were looked at suspiciously, because if one woman could do it, other women can do it. So there was a backlash on the other side, where it was reverted to even just like it is in the current thing, where there's a more traditional idea, and by traditional, I mean socially constructed idea, and that social system was created mostly by people in power, which are mostly men. So of course, women are second-class citizens. So a lot of women were like, I'm not like that. I am not going to do these things. And they really spoke out against 
her. And then they started to speak out against, like they became just as rabid and they were radicalized in the opposite way. So yeah, she was a hero to a small subset of people who are like, comheads shall prevail. And everyone else was like, we're in the middle of a fucking witch hunt for real though. And we don't have witches, so we're going to make them up sort of situation. So the women were like, "Uh uh-uh, nope, nope, we're not getting caught in that. That was a bad woman. Whatever you want to do, murder whoever you need to. It's fine. We will support you. It's fine. There were a lot of women who were really vilified. I mean, the French Revolution seemed to really enjoy vilifying women, whether it was Marie Antoinette, Charlotte Corday, the fishmonger women. They really sort of, instead of looking at it as like the corrupt men in power, whether or not it was, you know, Louis, male courtiers, uh, Marat, all of those sort of people, it's easier to sort of vilify secondhand citizens and second class citizens. So placing the blame on women rather than on the men in power, they're convenient scapegoats. Like, I mean, that's why during the burning times, you know, you hear about all of these women, especially women who didn't fit into this quote unquote societal norms that were expected of them. So it's like, elderly bitchy women you know or loud mouthy women like i would have been that definition i'm a witch (laughs) like i mean you know come on i know if you're not living your life in a way that would have gotten you burned at the stake in the 16th century like are you are you really living i mean i would not have lived to be as old as i am back then because my dumb ass would have mouthed off to somebody there's a lot of parallels between the witch hunts There's a lot of parallels between extremist journalism and conspiracy theory-based ideology in current American politics. If you go back and you read a lot of what Marat, um, and I'm about to wave my geeky nerd flag super high. Like if you go back and you read a lot of what Marat was writing about and a lot of the way that he addressed sort of the, the reigning elites, you can hear echoes of it in some of what is being said today, not just in the American political journalism that's going on, but sort of in any sort of conspiracy right wing thing. You get it, you get, you know, people saying weird shit in Italy. You have people saying weird shit here in Poland. You have people saying weird shit in the UK because of the fact that people want easy answers to very complex problems. And it's a journalistic tool and propaganda, especially when you're trying to start and make a political movements um, is the best tool that you have to persuade the downtrodden and those who feel neglected and unheard. And so that's why you see this reoccurring theme keep coming up over and over and over again throughout the centuries when, you know, you started with, you know, the Spanish Inquisition and then you get it in the witch hunts and then you get it in with Marat and his bullshit. And then you blame those people and blame those people and blame those people. I think there's one major difference between like the modern stuff though. Like a lot of the people who are a part of especially like extreme right-hand movements are not, they are not actually down no but they think that they are and that can sometimes even be more powerful than actually being the downtrodden oh yeah if you're being told by the people in power or the people who want to be in power that you are somehow that your way of life is dying that your way of life is in jeopardy that your way of life is whatever the fuck bullshit that they're being fed right now and there's a pandemic going on and there's an economic crisis happening and you may be out of work and you may be scared of losing your house and and all of this other stuff all of these other things that seem to have been accumulating and and brewing for the last year but if you look at the economic situations not necessarily between like sort of the middle class and the upper middle class that's going on but if you look at the economic disparities that happened in the French Revolution and that are happening in America right now they're not that far off of one another like there are economic historians who talk about the last time that we've seen the, this sort of economic discrepancy and disparage in between social classes and stuff like that is literally during the French Revolution. Um, So it's not surprising that something happened. It's just a little surprising that it's coming from the socioeconomic group that it's coming from. Yes. And I think in addition to that, what I've noticed with journalism, you've got your super neutral journalism that just tells you things that have happened, right? There was a hurricane on Wednesday. It was category five. It touched land in Florida, right? These are just things. They're just facts. There's no commentary on it. You have left-leaning commentary and you have right-leaning commentary. And 
the big difference between a lot of the left stuff is, you know, the left and the right stuff is fear. Oh, absolutely. And if you are constantly fed a diet of fear, you become more prone to believing stuff you wouldn't necessarily believe because being powerless and being scared at the same time is really awful. So you want to find a demagogue to follow. You want to find reasons for feeling the way that you feel. And if that means that you believe that there is some sort of secret cabal of Satanist Democrats and Jewish people and entertainment people who have a secret society that runs the entire world and is a pedophilia ring. Like, you're like, okay, yeah, no, that makes sense because like everything is scary and I can't make sense of why it's scary because all of my reasoning for stuff is that things happen for a reason. This must be the reason, right? No matter how bizarre it is, no matter how, if you took you know, Occam's razor to it and shaved it, you'd find there's really nothing there. It doesn't matter because they need that. They need something. People need something, especially when they're scared to hold on to. And for some people, it's, I'm going to fight for this other thing. And I'm going to hold on to hope that I can empower myself and others to do better. And then there's the other side, which is people are taking things from me. People are trying to actively harm me. I am afraid for my life. I am afraid for my way of life and the people around me. And I don't see hope. And that's where it's dangerous. Because yeah, they may not be in the same economical situation that witches were or certain French people were or whatever. But they are in the same mental state of, I need to protect my way of life, whatever that looks like. And if that means I need to kill a whole bunch of people who really just want to live their life and they're also scared because of stuff going on and they also just want what's best for people, but they just see it in a different way, I think that becomes a problem. And I think it also comes in line of like, there's a divisive us versus them instead of we in the U.S. right now. Yeah, well, and I think that that was also really going on in France at the same time. There was def- oh, yeah. there was definitely an us versus them thing. And, and that sort of happens when you get to any sort of revolution point in time. And, you know, obviously talking about what's going on in the U.S. right now is like, um, it's a little scary for me to be talking about a revolution. You know, I'm a little far away. Um, so it feels disconcerting and disconnected and and um all of that sort of stuff uh watching this on the news it feels similar here because i think you're just as far away from dc as i am yeah yeah i mean because i'm about i'm about seven thousand seven thousand ish miles away from where you are so yeah i mean we're we're about the same far but i think that i do honestly think though that if i was still in the states it would be a little bit different because i would still be connected to people whose lives it will affect on a daily basis you know yeah. But the point that I was I was trying to get at, um, especially is if you look at a lot of the sans culottes, again, you know, these aren't necessarily people that are the lowest um demographic. They're, you know, they may not be as wealthy as like the aristocrats and the nobility and stuff like that, but they're middle class people who are um trying originally what they were trying to do is to gain more rights within the French parliament um to have their things heard. And until they started going all batshit crazy. Louis was perfectly happy to meet with him. He did meet with them. There was the whole tennis court parliament. I think that's what it was called shit. I like the idea of them just meeting on a tennis court and like hashing it out over a game. I know that's not what happened, but like. He even showed up and was wearing their stupid hat. Like, cause they were some dumb hats. Those hats were dumb. I'm a big fan of a good dumb hat. Those were some dumb hats. We'll put a picture of the dumb hat or what the sans culotte would wear up on the Facebook page. But yeah, so I mean, again, it's, I think what it is, is middle-class people scared of losing some sort of way of life that may or may not even really be what they have or what they don't have. For some, it's literally an idea. Yeah. They're not losing what they have. They're losing the potential of something that they think is better than what they have. And it's like, again, it comes down to like this idea of false scarcity, which is really fed to the world in a lot of weird ways. Like we have more things than we've ever had before. There's a ton of food that goes to waste every year. Like if we just get a little more organized, like 
people could have really nice lives without having to be billionaires. And like, let's not even get started on billionaires. First of all, nobody should be a fucking billionaire. I'm just, I'm just, unless you're Dolly Parton and you're using all of your billions to the embetterment of humanity. Like, isn't she like one of those people who she's like always a billionaire for like half a second. And then she just spends a shit ton of money on making other people's lives better. And then just goes back down to a regular millionaire. Yeah, pretty much. I'm like, that's how you should be a billionaire. Like, if I were a billionaire, I hope I'm a Dolly Parton billionaire and not an Elon Musk billionaire. I don't think that you would be an Elon Musk millionaire. Like, first of all, you know, you're delightful and you're kooky, but you're not batshit crazy. Um, (laughs) I know that you would use it right and you would have a library with one of those spinning doors because if you didn't, oh my God, like our friendship would legitimately be over. Like, I don't know if you had a billion dollars and you didn't have a library with like a hidden door. I don't think I could be your friend anymore. Oh no, I would, I would have a house full of hidden secret passages and whole secret, like a whole secret house off of my regular house that you could only access through like a weird antechamber, which is not actually an antechamber. It's an antilibrary. I have plans. I have a lot of plans and I don't have the money for any of it. So it's all a daydream. And it's okay to daydream about that because like my reasons for having money is to make things fun and funny. My reasons for making money are not to just have more money and subjugate other people. So I don't need to protect this idea of having billions of dollars Because I know that like what you do with a billion dollars is more important than having the billion dollars. Absolutely. If you just want to be a billionaire to become a multi-billionaire, to become a multi-multi-billionaire, to become an infinitely multi-billionaire, then like what does that get you? Like if you're not happy now and you're not happy with your first million and you're not happy with your first billion, like it's not a money problem. It's a you problem. And they have therapists for that. And you have money to get them. Look. It's amazing. You could literally hire the best therapist in the world with your billions of dollars, dude face, and probably get some of that like top-notch medication. Not that generic medication is bad or whatever, but like you could get the real shit. You probably don't have to like, I don't know. Do they have to like go and like give their ID and like, sign things saying that you're not going to like make meth in your bathroom or whatever because no because we all know that elon musk and jeff i I cannot say that we would get sued so fast (laughs) like i will just just make their own (laughs) she said it she oh i need adhd medicine fine i'm gonna create another company to make my adhd medicine for me and it's gonna be better than nasa's company Never mind that that allegory did not go well. I apologize. I was on board with it. I was on the Kendra train to that allegory. It was beautiful. I loved it. You should have taken it the whole way. Because you know what? If NASA came up with some ADHD medicine, you better believe your ass that I would take the fuck out of that. Like, and it would probably not have any weird side effects. It would, because NASA still like that's a that's a brain chemistry thing more than it is a that's a that's a you thing, not a them thing at that point unfortunately. Isn't everything a me thing? Like everything that's wrong with me, isn't that just like a me? Like that's just absolutely a me thing. Okay, let's get this episode back on track. (laughs) So anyway, what we're trying to say is that this shit is cyclical and we, oh, because yeah, wasn't there a point at some point where yellow journalism was really huge? And I think yellow is actually a racist slur. So I think it's actually awful to say, but that's what they were calling it. And Hearst was involved and it was like before World War one or around world war one where they were again inciting people to think stupid shit because they were lying um and then after that they were like you have to have truth in journalism yeah well i mean if you look like seriously if you look at most of like the 19th century when sort of journalism really 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 starts taking off like i mean yes in the 18th century you have like journalism sort of taking off but then in like the 19th century you have like fleet street in in london and then you've got like all the new york papers like really popping up and you've got like all the San Francisco papers really popping up. And it was basically sensationalism journalism. Like that's just what they did. They had to sell the most papers and Hearst was a part of that evil son of a bitch that he was. Really, when you think about like William Randolph Hearst makes Rupert Murdoch in some ways 
look like an amateur. Yeah. And this is this is coming from somebody who spent most of her youth wanting to be a journalist, admiring the hell out of people like Molly Ives and Nellie Bly and Ida B. Wells and Joan Didion, who I still love to this day. Like Joan Didion is just fucking forget about it. Um, but you know, I also know the pitfalls of journalism. And I know, I know that in some ways, you know, not everybody gets to be these amazing journalists, you know, we don't all get to be Ta-Nehisi Coates and Joan Didion and Molly Ives and Nellie Bly. And some of that comes from sensationalism, right? A lot of it comes from sensationalism. You've got good writers on the other side and you're not a good writer. What do you have? Well, I can make it exciting. (laughs) I can make it exciting and not true and salacious. Get to that base instinct of people to watch train wrecks and give them a ton of train wrecks or a ton of taboo stuff. So it's a lot easier to to get people to believe stuff like there's a ring of pedophiles that is run by like a satanic cult that is all the Democrats and all of these people if you want to believe that about them anyway, because you're scared. So like it's easier to get people to believe that if they're already scared and already feel like they're under attack for like just living their lives, whatever that looks like. And a lot of times them living their lives is hurtful to other people, but they're not seeing that because they have, they are feeling pain too. Yeah. Did you know that the Nazis hated Marat and like melted a statue of him? This doesn't surprise me. Like, first of all, let's be really clear on some shit. The Nazis hated everybody, like, except for people who were Nazis. That's true. These are also the ridiculous people that like had the degenerate art show you know, where they toured um, Matisse. I mean, and don't get me wrong, like as somebody who has a minor or minor slash double major in art history, I understand the problematic nature of a lot of these people, but it's not for why the Nazis thought that they were problematic. Matisse and Picasso were problematic for very different reasons than why the Nazis found them problematic. Like fucking womanizing assholes. Yeah. Mainly that they were misogynist and racist and all that stuff. It's one of those things where we are told, especially because Jilly and I, if you haven't paid attention to our other episodes, are super liberal. We are told that we need to reach across the aisle and learn to understand these people. And I feel like it's one of those situations where we can sit down and say, no, we understand you. We understand that you are afraid you're losing your way of life. We are understanding that, especially if you are in an economically depressed area where like mining has gone away or like some of those other areas that still work conservative. Yes. Steel work. Like you become more conservative because you're scared. And it's like, I understand that, but it doesn't mean that your power being taken away from you isn't given back when you take power from others. Because there's this this thing that if we just get rid of X, we will have power over our lives again and everything will be fine. And it's like, no, it that's not how it works. Like you will still not have power and you'll still be scared, but you won't have any more scapegoats. And then it's your neighbors and then your neighbors are against you. And then it's you who are on Madame de Guillotine's chopping block. Like if you keep following fear, you get chaos. That's really, honestly, I think how the rain sort of started. And I think that that's what like Mara's death really signified for them was, you know, the fact that, you know, he was sort of their megaphone and allowed them to like read and hear and feel justified in their fears and all of that sort of stuff. And then their megaphone died and they didn't have any direction at that point in time. They didn't have anyone sort of funneling all of that fear and it just sort of exploded. And Robespierre, I think, took up that mantle heck of fast. He did, but he wasn't as clever. I mean, come on, let's admit it. Robespierre was not as clever as as Marat. He wasn't as good as sort of wrangling the insanity and just went, fuck it, let's burn it all to the ground. Which I understand if you've been listening to this podcast, you will know is a favorite of mine. Like, I think that I have mentioned burning things to the ground in almost every episode because I like s'mores and burning things to the ground. Not really, I'm kidding. That's not true. She loves burning things to the ground and s'mores, probably equally. Don't listen to her. (laughs) But I think that what Charlotte Corday was trying to do was she, or felt that she was doing, was that if she took away that megaphone, people would sort of, it would just sort of peter out and people would go back to their lives and stop being afraid and, or not stop being afraid, but put that fear into something else instead of having it absolutely amplified. Mm -hmm. And I think the 
big difference between her and Judith is, is in Judith's case, there actually was another for them to be afraid of. Like the people were actually being attacked. Her people were actually being attacked and the soldiers and everything like that weren't necessarily afraid for their lives. They weren't scared that that their way of life was being destroyed or anything like that. They were trying to conquer something. They were trying to conquer these other people and they didn't necessarily want to be there anyway. They were like, we're really far from home. You know, we're not anywhere near our families, all this other stuff. And so like when Holofernes died, they didn't have that anymore. And they weren't necessarily in the economic crisis that that the French were in at the time. They didn't have a power structure in place that supported them. Yeah. That's what I think really came down to. And they didn't have a power structure that supported them. Whereas in the reign of terror, there was still a power structure of scared people and opportunistic people too in that middle class that had some power, but they weren't the king who is the devil. So they were okay power. Like, And it's that thing where like you look at people who really like President Trump. He wasn't trained to be a politician. He's just a businessman. Should he wanted that? Robespierre was just a middle-class dude doing middle-class dude stuff and was then elevated to a point of leadership where he did a lot of harm. I think the weird thing about Robespierre is is he didn't start out as this revolutionary at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, like he fought really hard to sort of get to meet the king at one point in time and the king being Louis and stupid and socially inept and stuff like that sort of blew him off. And that's what started Robespierre's inevitable ass hurt about the royal people and deciding that he needed to basically tear down all of this bullshit is he was a nice middle-class boy who was training to be a lawyer or some, some, some such shit. And this goes back to the whole thing of like Robespierre liked to claim that he was a man of the people. He was an upper middle-class lawyer he was fairly well positioned in life. He wasn't aristocracy and he wasn't nobility or gentry or anything like that, but he wasn't like this man of the people. Like I want to go back and punch Robespierre in the dick. There's a lot of weird stuff. Like it's that Dunning Kruger effect in place, right? People who have trained to be politicians know that they, well, a lot of them don't know that they don't know everything about being a politician. Except for some, there's always exceptions. Yes, I know. Middle-class people who have never been a politician think they know more about being a politician than a politician knows. And then there's just regular people who are like, this shit's just fucking astrophysics to me. I'm not an astrophysicist. I'm a baker. I'm a rancher. I'm a design student. Like there's a certain point where you feel that you know what to do because you have experience in a certain realm of being and you think that it's transferable and it proves to not be. I mean, and I get that. Like, I'm a words person and there's no way that I could go in and do mathematician shit because numbers are confusing as hell for me. That doesn't mean that I'm going to shit all over mathematicians and say that they're like, anyway, I'm, I'm having some problems with like, you know, the Dunning-Krugers of this world, right? I mean, and by right now, I mean, like, always. But I think that's one of those things where, like, you look at these people who are like, well, the king did a terrible job, and I've run a business, so I can rule a country. No, you can't. And it's like, mm, you know, the fact of the matter is, is um, governments rise and fall really damn fast. Yeah. So, like, nobody really knows how to do it. It's one of those things where everyone sort of sucks. And if you go into it thinking you know exactly how to do it, you're going to get messed up because like, especially if you, you haven't started out small in politics to learn how to do the basic, like, oh, I am the head of a committee for my state or I am the head of a committee for my city, yeah. right? Like you don't realize like how interconnected all of this stuff is and so of course it's easy to think oh and especially for people who have no knowledge they're like well it should be just as easy as saying well we're not going to have wars anymore or we're not going to be a part of this thing because like it's not doing us any good because you don't have I think the other thing that a lot of these people weren't necessarily understanding was they were seeing Louis I mean and bless his bless his little like clock tinkering heart like that's and lock tinkering heart like that's really what he wanted to do he just wanted to play with his clocks and his locks and 
you know, poor, sweet, simple Louis. But I mean, they weren't understanding that a lot of it was actually the people that he was surrounding himself with and the nobility at court and, and that he just, he was absolutely thrust into a role that he was complete. He also was completely unprepared for. And his wife, you know, she was the youngest child of Marie Therese Habsburg. Oh, the Habsburgs. I love the look on your face right now, ma'am. Like I'm thinking of chins and noses right now. Like it's all I can think of is just chins and noses. So one of the last times that I was in Vienna, I did a um a photography tour of where all I was gonna do was take pictures of the Habsburg jaw. Um, and, um, yeah, I, I went through two memory cards. Oh, wow. Um, anyway, there'll be a link to what Habsburg jaws are on the Facebook page. Um, there are these two young children who were thrust into this role with a bunch of very corrupt, very greedy people who I think knew in some ways that they were going to kind of be okay because they weren't in the spotlights. They weren't the ones who were going to take the fall for anything because they knew it would be the king and queen. And I think that there was a lot of corruption and a lot of um, bullshit in the court that was going on of Louis and Marie Antoinette that the king and queen didn't necessarily know how to navigate politically or savvily as well. And you have to look at their parents for that because maybe not hers as much as his. He was indulged a lot more than some kings because I don't think his dad expected to die. His grandfather, you mean? Yeah, his grandfather. Sorry. Yeah. Like, you know, that feeling it's like, well, I'm going to stay in power and I'm going to take control of this and I'm not going to relinquish any or really train anyone to take over. I don't know. It's all complicated and it really sucks. Yeah. And it really sucks that the, the reign of terror was then ended by Napoleon Bonaparte and that opened its own fucking big old can of worms and craziness. And everybody talks about him as sort of being the savior of France. And then you look at like kind of what he does throughout the rest of Europe. But, you know, getting back to Charlotte, who this episode is about, she definitely thinks that she has the best interests of a country that she clearly loved very much. Like she clearly loved France. And, you know, I've been there a couple of times and I get it. France is beautiful. France is amazing. France is gorgeous. You know. The people are really nice. I don't understand why everyone thinks French people are terrible. I liked French people. Oh, Parisian waiters. Being a waiter sucks. I think <laughs> I think at this point, like, American waiters should just take on the guise of French waiters because of how terrible humans are. Not even French waiters, Parisian waiters. And after some of the horseshit that I have seen, both living in Paris and visiting Paris a bunch, um, I don't blame them. I'm like... Parisian waiters get carte blanche to act any way that they want to when stupid ass tourists come and ask stupid ass questions. Bonjour, welcome to Chez de la Montembertre. I am your waiter for this evening. My name is Jean-Luc de la Pierre-Renaud, but you may call me Jean. Bonjour, Jean. Oh, look at you. If you have any questions about anything at all, I'm more than happy to uh, assist you. Mm -hmm. Jean, I got it. Merci beaucoup. Oh. Très bien. Like, I wanted to be rude to some people. Like, I heard a guy complaining once that the French didn't know how to make a grilled cheese sandwich. Like, I just... What? Uh, what the what? <laughs> what? I don't understand. Like, didn't the French invent cheese and bread together? Yeah, and croque monsieurs. Yeah. Yeah, like, like I was wait, just... no. No, no, no. <laughs> you are wrong. You are so wrong. I'm like, I'm really, really sorry that they don't put... Craft singles on some, you know, Wonder Bread and fry it up with like mayonnaise, sir. I'm sorry. Please that... Don't use that word. That's so gross. Ugh, I can't anymore. <laughs> yeah, France is beautiful. France is gorgeous. The people are great. If I were a woman there and I saw that there was a chance that a lot of people who were not doing power plays or, you know, were just living their lives were in danger of getting hurt. I would want to do something too. I think the only problem with Charlotte is that it didn't work. You know, like it worked for Judith, but because of the political machine that was being driven by the rhetoric of the time, she lit a match instead of putting out an ember. And I think, you know, what she did was ballsy as heck. Yeah. And she knew she was going to die for it. And she was totally okay with that. And that's like taking responsibility for your actions to a whole other level but uh, it didn't work and that's the part where I totally admire her for not for murder again cover my ass we do not condone murder we never condone murder ever mm -mm. but she felt that she was going to do the same thing that Judith did she was going to 
take out one person and that one person was going to save 10,000 people. And she wanted to minimize harm in the world. And it's like, I understand that motivation. And she knew that when she did it, she was going to be murdered. She was going to be killed back killed back like it's like well I'm gonna kill you fine I'll kill you back she was gonna get killed because of it and she knew what the cost was and she was willing to take that responsibility my problem with Charlotte is that she didn't see that the rhetoric would actually be flamed by that fact and I think that's something that like in today's age Charlotte would probably be like, oh, no, 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 no. We can't kill the dude. We got to just find a way to deplatform him, remove his power, right? And killing someone is the extreme sense of deplatforming. But like nowadays, we have people who have been fighting for Facebook and Twitter to deplatform people who spread a message of hate. A certain president. Because it works. And they haven't. And when they do, all of a sudden, a lot of things sort of fizzle out. Sure, there's a little bit of a flare up here and there. But if you continue to tap out those flames of hatred and fear, then like you can get ahead of this. And if you see it in advance, you should start deplatforming early, deplatform often, especially when it comes to hate. That's where you want to do it, not as a reaction to extreme behavior. And I think that's something that we learned from Charlotte is you... (laughs) If you're gonna deplatform, do it before bad things happen. Absolutely. I think also with Charlotte is Mariah is sort of the first, I'm not saying that that this sort of sensationalism didn't exist before him, but it was sort of the first that was like this, like that was this widespread, that was this inciting, that was this crazy. Being able to figure out how to deal with that in a sort of way that doesn't isn't more insightful. You know, I'm sure that she honestly felt like she didn't have another choice. Like she was just like, this is the only choice because like it wasn't really a thing back then. And like, even if it was, you know, with the way that pamphlets, it's not like you can just have like the pamphlet makers or like go to the press person and be like, don't press this person's thing because it's not like a website. And I'm totally, totally not condoning Charlotte at all. Like bad life choice. I also want to state for the record, our imaginary record that I state things for that is put into some sort of archive to be jotted out to show me that I have said something previously that's probably totally wrong. But Marat actually did believe that even the poorest members of society had basic human rights. His heart was in the right place, but also he just kind of, and I don't want to tone police him, but it was definitely his tone. (laughs) I think his two women who've been probably tone policed our entire lives, fuck it, let's tone police some dudes. Yeah. I think if you are writing to inflame people to movement and the movement isn't to empower them to have better lives, but to kill other people, then yeah, your tone needs some adjusting for real though. If you are using your platform to incite violence, you know, and that's sort of one of the things that, you know, I've talked about with people here, you know, when we're discussing the events of of January 6th and sort of what happened last summer with the Black Lives Matter movement and stuff like that. I'm like, if you look at the way that the rhetoric is being talked about, it's very, very different. BLM was definitely all about making sure that violence didn't happen. Like they were really big on not inciting violence to to demonstrate peacefully, you know, how to keep themselves safe if violence did potentially break out, which clearly it did. But, you know, there was a real push for a nonviolent action. Whereas what happened on January 6th, they had a hard on for it. They were like, all I want to do is wreak fucking havoc. I want to, like some of them were like, we're going to kidnap Pelosi and we're going to hang Pence. And I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah, no. See, when BLM went out, they weren't like, we're going to hang people. We're going to kill people. They were like, you need to stop killing us. And like, that's different. You need to stop killing us is not the same as, oh, these people need to die. They're not saying the police need to be murdered. It's kind of the exact opposite. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's the weirdest thing. And I found it interesting that weird things happen around the time that we have decided to do certain women for the post. And like, I had been sort of struggling with doing an episode on Charlotte Corday specifically because she fanned the flames of the other side. And like, 
I couldn't find good in that. And I was really struggling with like, I think she's a badass, not necessarily because of what the consequences were, but because she had a clear idea of if I stop the person inciting people to murder, then people will stop murdering. And I know that will probably end up in my death and I'm fully willing to accept those consequences. And in fact, she wrote, a, like I said, a letter to her dad beforehand or after or during, I don't remember, pretty much saying the exact same thing. Probably not during the murder because that would have been like a little... She was a multitasker. You don't know. You don't know. <laughs> That's true. I know. mean, most women have to be. Most <laughs> women have to be. I admire her for her seeing a problem having a solution, knowing that whether she is successful or not, there are consequences and that she's okay with the consequences. And that is a thing where when I look at, especially during the civil rights movement, people were out doing things knowing that they could be killed because it was the right thing to do. And that is where I'm like, okay, Charlotte had the right idea but executed it poorly. It was a really bad execution. She did not stick the landing at all. Like, Isn't she the one that they... No, that was Marie Antoinette that made a face. No, Corday made a face during her execution. I think they said she made faces or something after her head was removed from her body, which is really fascinating and horrifying. You know, Mary Queen of Scots also, because the guy, when he was cutting off her head, like the blade wasn't sharp enough or something like that. And so like you could actually hear her going, oh, dear God, please let it end. Wow. See, this is the beautiful stuff you learn on our wonderful podcast about women. And we promise it's just the first season that has a lot of murder. Next season, we're planning on doing a lot of really uplifting non-murder stories, or maybe not necessarily uplifting, but some non-murder stories. Uh, who are we doing next season? No, we've got some things about insane asylums and mental health reform, and those are those are going to be rough. But it's not murder, necessarily. It's not murder. And we do also have a lot of women who rise above some pretty unfortunate fathers. To get back to poor Charlotte real quick, um, the thing that I admire about her is she definitely identified the problem. She definitely executed on the solution and she was willing to take the consequences of her actions. The only problem was her action was the wrong action. And not because murder is wrong, but because murder incited more murder. Yes. I should say not just because murder is wrong. And um, I feel like we really can't state this enough on this podcast. We don't condone murder. We don't condone violence. Despite the fact that, you know, I literally just said that I wanted to go back in time and punch Robespierre on the dick. Um, but like, Look, I feel the same way about Edison. So like, let's just state for the record again we're not perfect. We suck as humans. And speaking of sucking as humans, I do want to make an apology in last week's episode, I believe. It's the episode with Theodora. I called Empress Euphemia a bitch and I want to apologize because I'm trying not to use gendered epithets as disparaging because like using the terms for women um, as negative things is like really sort of furthering the idea that being a woman is bad and it's not. So shout out to Euphemia. Totally sorry. We think you're an asshole, not a bitch. And there you go. Hopefully we will find documentation that will prove and vindicate you and prove that you're not an asshole. So we can then in a, some later date go, hey, we're really sorry we called you an asshole. You were just dealt a really bum hand and, you know, not actually being a fucking asshole. Yes. That is our hope for everybody. But we also know that everyone is just a little bit of an asshole. And if you are enculturated in a society that perpetuates negative behaviors, then until you realize those are negative, you will continue to do those things. And the only thing you can do is just get better. So go team, get better. That's, that's, our, that's our team now. Jilly is go team, get better. Go team, get better. Okay. Don't let me name teams. Um, so I think uh, that's the big takeaway here is don't let me name teams and really think about like when you are about to take a head off of a serpent. Metaphorically. Make sure it's a serpent and not a hydra. Yes. And I think that is where the, that's where the big difference between Judith and Charlotte Corday is, is Judith really was faced with a serpent and Charlotte was faced with a hydra and the head she chopped off, it grew more heads 
and got real mad. That's the big takeaway. And then the other takeaway is when you make a decision to act on something, it's being able to take responsibility for that action, whatever that looks like, especially like it has been with the Black Lives Matter movement and it was with the civil rights movement. You know you're going to get arrested, but you're doing the right thing, knowing that you're going to do that. Don't be afraid of the consequences when you were doing the thing that is right. And that's what I think I learned from Charlotte Corday. Well, and the Black Lives Matter movement and the civil rights movement and a whole bunch of really amazing people throughout history. But I think Charlotte was the first time as a small child that I think I was like, oh, she just took her lumps. I mean, and her lumps were getting her head chopped off, but she just was like, yeah, no, I knew this was going to happen and it's okay. I guess, yeah, I guess we're comparing Charlotte to who? Who's the woman that you think that Charlotte's like in modern time? Or could you not come up with anybody? I couldn't. I like the idea of... Rachel Maddow. You think? Not in the murder. Oh, I mean, she totally slays. So kind of? Yeah. Okay, wait, hold on. We also need to disclaimer, we actually don't think that Rachel Maddow kills people. Oh, yeah, no, 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 no. But she she throws some shade and you should die of shame. There we go. There we go. But she does definitely defang journalism that isn't truthful. And I think that is where like a modern day Charlotte Corday is Rachel Maddow because Rachel Maddow isn't fanning the flames. Rachel Maddow is going out and defanging that Hydra. And every time a new head pops out, coming back with facts. And yes, definitely some bias. But when people are lying and when people are making up stories to fit their narrative, that being biased is not bad because you are biased towards the truth. Yeah. And I think that's where it's a very different example of what Charlotte Corday did. But it's in the same spirit. Just no murder. Yeah, which is good because, you know, we really can't state this enough. We are we are definitely not pro-murder. God, I can't wait until we have a season where I don't have to say that every episode. <laughs> I think after this, there's not a lot of murder. I think. I'm hoping. I know who we're doing next week and she doesn't murder anybody. And I know who we're doing the week after that. And she definitely doesn't murder anybody. She just murders a bunch of verse, yo. True. She's killing it in the poetry department. What? Shall I compare thee to a badass summer's day, bitches? Okay. Foreshadowing. Hashtag it's real, yo. Forrest, we're so sorry. God, we're so sorry. Anyway, um, I think now is about the time that we need to talk about our badass acquaintance of the day. Jilly, I'm going to let you go first because I'm a hot mess and I need to like, I don't know. Um, okay, so mine is um, my friend Anki. Uh, she's Swedish. That doesn't make her automatically amazing, but it definitely helps. Um, she's super funny. She's delightfully irreverent. Um, some of my favorite afternoons when I'm back stateside are spent hanging out with her, drinking coffee and, and talking about art and art history and literature and just the fact that she is always so passionate and um, vibrant about anything that sort of falls into the art artistic sphere. And um, I remember one time we were sitting in, in her old back garden and we were talking about writing a combined paper on Edward Hopper and Robert Frost and talking about mid-century American exceptionalism and isolation within that in post-war uh, America. That it was just, and we just... You know, and unfortunately, because of me and the ADHD, I, I just never got around to following out and stuff like that. But like, um, and, you know, she just sort of reminds me that it's it's OK to be a nerdy, dorky girl who loves punk rock and beautiful art and um, giggling in museums. Because every time Anki and I go to a museum together, we laugh and giggle and have so much fun that we get shushed and almost kicked out of the museum. That's a running theme for you. It really is. But they're not these reverent places of worship that you should be having fun when you're there. You should not be taking it seriously. I mean, you should. There are definitely times that you should, but like, you know, and since, you know, I mean, we're talking this episode about a point in time in history that created an ex Again, because this is also a reoccurring theme throughout this series with arts and stuff like that, um, you know, and the death of Marat and um, David and and his whole crazy horse shit. Um, it just seems really appropriate to do a shout out to Anki. So there you go. All right, madam, who's yours? That's where I'm having a hard time. There's just so many people. Um, but I think 
this week I want to sort of talk about my friend Ostra. Ostra is um, part of a group of four humans who have had a open chat for six years, seven years, something like that, where we talk about anything and everything. And I think that's one of the reasons that I really admire her is that she has a way of calling you on your shit. And you know when she does it, it's because she loves you and she wants you to be a better human. And that energy is, I think, very similar to both Rachel Maddow and in a way to Charlotte Corday. Um, in that when you see bullshit, saying something about it so that other people can do something about it or doing it yourself if you're seeing your own bullshit or bullshit around you, doing something. And I really admire her for that. Um, she's also does weird puppet movie things with me and makes my understanding of tea like she's furthered my knowledge of teas and tea types and tea things to a point where like it's just amazing the amount of information that she has on that and that's fascinating but she's also goofy and loves horror movies and we have one of our favorite horror movies is the same we both love Suspiria because it's artistic and weird and surrealist dadaist bullshit and scary at the same time and there's a lot of things in our past that we have in common that it's nice to see another person who has sort of dealt with that stuff in a very meaningful way um, and come out the other side with that thirst not to to just continue that lifelong I need to be better, whatever that looks like, whether that is mentally, physically, or you know, just societally, what am I bringing to the world? I want to do better. That's something that I really admire. Awesome. She sounds great. She's super great. So that's us for this week. Okay. So hopefully next week we'll be a little more jointed, um, but we're not making any promises. At this point, we're some sort of like arthropod with too many legs and we apologize. Uh, but yes, next week we should be more jointed. We should be focused yeah hopefully um so remember if you guys have amazing women that you want mentioned or shouted out swing by our facebook page um send us an email at bwohpodcast at gmail.com and we will be happy to sing the praises of any amazing women that you know yes see you guys next week see you next week badass women of history Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Mm-hmm.